0: On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Tim Pickavance about epistemology, knowledge, and all things related to that. So we cover all sorts of topics like what do we mean when we talk about knowledge? How does that differ from things like belief or intuition or faith? What are the various kinds of knowledge that are out there? How do they relate? Why does philosophical knowledge actually matter for me and even my own kids? And other peoples in Jesus other peoples. Other people in Jesus' church. How do moral and intellectual virtues relate to one another? How have churches inadvertently widened this divide? What is the most foundational type of knowledge? I mean, you got all sorts of great stuff in this episode. It's awesome. And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website. TheLondonLyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of The London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and I am joined by Matt Natiros with me today. And we are a podcast, and institutional uh, center that is dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And when we say serious thinking, we mean a particular set of virtues in mind, just Christian virtue in general, Think James 3, what the wisdom from above looks like. But we've kind of cashed them out into four C's that we like to remind our listeners of and all who engage our stuff things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. Uh, I'm a Baptist. Uh, Brandon, who started the podcast with me, is a Baptist. And we looked around and said, you know what? Baptists don't think a lot. We want to be critical thinkers. We want to be serious about that. We want to do high power philosophy but we also want to do it with Christian virtues in mind, and we want to do it in a confessional context. So when we talk about cheerfully confessional, uh, sometimes I say that's just we don't want to be curmudgeonly about what we believe, but I think it's more than just that. It means that we confess with the Church Catholic, uh, like the great ecumenical creeds of the faith. They are what binds us as Christians. They guide us. They guard us. But we also don't fear having a robust articulation of the Reformed Protestant faith, which gives us that flavor and sort of passion and, and mission. So yes, we are Catholic before we're Protestant, but that doesn't detract from our vision of Protestantism as distinct, fruitful, and necessary for um, the upbuilding of the faith and the upbuilding of the saints. Now, today, I'm really excited to talk to Dr. Timothy Pickavance about one of his latest books, uh, Knowledge for the Love of God. It is a, I would consider it a trade-level book. Uh, so for those of you guys who are pastors, who are looking for um, volumes, thinking about what does it look like to have live the life of the mind, to think about... Uh, topics of epistemology and knowledge, I think this is a great volume to pick up and to look at. Uh, it's only 150 or so pages, and he's written it not as an academic tone, but something that you can really understand and use in your local churches. So before we even talk about it, I want to commend that. I'll have a link in the show notes that you can go check it out. I think it is awesome. So he's got the subtitle here, Why Your Heart Needs Your Mind. I, I think it's fabulous, and I am stoked to talk about it. So Tim, before we get into just talking about all that goes on with the life of the mind, the heart, and all the, all the things that play into it, tell me a little bit about yourself. I imagine half of our listeners are familiar with you and the other half have never heard of you. So give me a little bit of background to situate yourself. And then maybe what got you into thinking about, hey, I want to write this particular book on this particular topic at this particular time.
1: Hey, Jordan, thanks for having me on with you guys today. I'm really grateful to be here uh, to talk about the book. Uh, I am a philosophy professor at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. So my main job, I've been here for 15 years, my main job over the years has been teaching master's level students in our MA in philosophy. Um, Matt is actually in the process of completing that degree. So I've had the pleasure to have him in class over the years as well. But in addition to that, I also teach undergraduate students a class called Foundations of Christian Thought, which is part of the core Bible and theology requirements that every Biola University student has to take. And it's really that class that got me thinking I needed to write a book like this. Because what I've experienced with those students, and it's a big lecture class, 100 at a time, I've I've taught probably 40% of the undergraduates at Biola at this point. What they come to Biola not having encountered in their churches, evidently, is what it is that their mind has to do with their devotion to Jesus. And I'm also raising my own kids. And so I thought, What do I want my own children to understand about their mind and why it matters to God when they leave my home, right? When they head off to college, wherever they wind up going. And so I wrote this book basically to answer the question, what would I want my kids to know about their mind and their devotion to Jesus as they're becoming adults, So that's who I wrote the book for. It's why it's dedicated to my two kids, Lyle and Gretchen. Um, It's for their future selves, really. But it was born out of teaching the freshmen at Biola why they should care about studying hard while they're here. That's the basic answer.
0: That's awesome. So as I was reading it, I, I couldn't help but think like, man, this is the sort of like, this was the impetus for wanting to start a podcast like this. Was to encourage those sort of discussions and, and like intellectual habits, and I can't help but think of somebody like you as a model. When I became interested in philosophy, I was already sort of like into Reformed theology, and I was looking around at philosophy, thinking, "Where are all the Reformed philosophers?" Number one, where are all like where they don't exist, it seemed to me, and yet we have examples like you. Uh, I just interviewed Greg Welty recently, and these guys who. Uh, care deeply about philosophy and doing it at a high level, but they also care deeply for the local church, for the life that goes on there. Think of Greg; he he's a pastor in his local church. You are a ruling elder at your local church. I mean, I I love commending people like you. So if, if you guys aren't li- if you're listening now, you need to just check out Tim's stuff, because what he's trying to do is unique and special, and is what we really want to commend with the podcast, using the life of the mind for the life of the local church. So let's go ahead and talk about the book. Well, Jordan, those
1: are some very kind words and I, <laughs> I'm very grateful for that. And I, I, I just to add a little bit, I do love the local church. I'm a ruling elder in my PCA congregation. Um, I'm also a scholar in residence there and I, I just love serving the local church. Um, and and it's, 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 a, it's a joy to see the way that devotion to Jesus with one's mind will shape your heart over the long, slow process that is becoming more like Christ. So I'm, I just, I commend to your listeners as well um, the love of the body of Christ through its local expressions, and and I'm just, those are very kind words of you to say, Jordan. So thank you for that.
0: Well, I also had the pleasure of reading your. Well, I didn't read the massive one. I haven't read it yet. The Atlas of Reality. But I got the small fundamentals of metaphysics. So I know I get asked all the time, like, where do I start with understanding metaphysics? And I recommend your book with with uh, Rob Coons before anybody else's because I think it is really nice introduction to all the various oh, topics. Thanks. So en- enough brown nosing. I'm not gaining <laughs> anything from this, by the way. So I'm just telling you like it is. This is the truth. Tim's awesome. He also has a gigantic beard and he's wearing flannel. And so it's like just this, you know, perfect mix of everything that you'd want in a philosopher. So let's just talk (laughs) about knowledge. When we think about knowledge, like what is knowledge? How does it differ from things like belief or intuition or faith? A lot of the times I think people don't really try to cash out the differences between them. They use the terms interchangeably just depending on how they're talking. So like what are the different meanings between them?
1: Wow that is a that's a complicated question, Jordan. Um, and one of the reasons it's complicated is because there's what these words mean in our ordinary conversations and and they tend to sort of run over a bunch of different stuff that's going on in our minds. So I just want to flag that like I'm gonna say some stuff right now about these words. But I I think it's actually a mistake that sometimes people make to expect too much of the language itself in our normal conversations. So don't be a jerk at dinner parties with this stuff, is what I'm saying. Um, so, uh, but there there are different things that go on in our minds. So um, here's here's one one thing that our minds do is represent the world independent of our minds, and it even can represent other aspects of our mind, right? So we have these things that we tend to call beliefs, um, beliefs that certain things are true. For example, I'm here in sunny Southern California, and I believe that it's sunny outside. That is to say, I've got some kind of inner representation of an external reality. And that's what we call belief when those things become stable parts of our inner representation of the world. For example, I believe that my two children and my wife are currently at home studying away on whatever it is that they're studying on. That's a kind of stable representation of my mind that's about things independent of my mind, independent of that very thing. So we tend to talk about beliefs, the kind of core notion of belief, I think, is a kind of stable representation of a of a reality that has its own... Thing going on, right? That we could get much more technical than that if you wanted to, but that's the basics, right? Now, some of those stable representations we we have for good reasons. They're connected to the world in the right sorts of ways. Those are ones that we call reasonable beliefs. So when we have those stable representations for good reasons, I think of those as reasonable, reasonable or rational, and then. There are. there's a different question. Do those representations represent well? Are they accurate? That's when we call them true. So there's, of course, a huge conversation in the field of epistemology. In many ways, this is one of the core questions of epistemology. What is knowledge? I think there's a lot to say about all that, but in the book, I sort of work with a definition of knowledge or a characterization of knowledge, I'd rather call it, on which knowledge of the propositional form, and we can get into other kinds of knowledge if you want, is reasonable true belief. So essentially what knowledge is, is a stable representation that is accurate to the world and formed for good reasons. So this is similar to definitions you get from people like Dallas Willard, who says things like this, knowledge is the ability to represent a respective subject matter as it is on an appropriate basis of thought and experience. And what he's getting at is that knowledge is something inside of our minds that's about the world in some way or other, and then it's held for good reasons. So that's my basic characterization of what I would call propositional knowledge. If that uh, lands, I'm I'm grateful. (laughs) You know, happy to talk happy to unpack any of those pieces okay. as well
0: so yeah. you just mentioned a term propositional knowledge is that different from other types of knowledge yes what are the different types of knowledge that are usually cashed out in philosophical senses anyway
1: there are usually if you pick up most standard textbooks in epistemology which is the philosophical study of knowledge there are, generally speaking, three types of knowledge that will be distinguished. The first is propositional knowledge, which is what we've been talking about. The second is what we think of as know-how. So uh, knowing how to ride a bike. We tend to, to flag these different kinds of knowledge, by the way, in, in English with different prepositions or constructs in language. So know-how, know-that. Um, and then if you have know and then a kind of bare just noun phrase, like I know Matt, or I know my wife. So that kind of thing where there's no that or how that often that's called knowledge by acquaintance. Um, There are different forms of knowledge by acquaintance, but the basic thought is that knowledge by acquaintance is that thing that comes when you've had an encounter with a thing. And it's sometimes not able to be put into words in meaningful ways. So the, the idea that I know my wife, That's connected, I think, to propositional knowledge, but it's not reducible to propositional knowledge. There's something sort of interpersonally deep about that that requires uh, an interaction between you and a thing. When that acquaintance knowledge is between two persons as persons, sometimes philosophers will call that second personal knowledge. So that's when you're having acquaintance with another that is mutually engaged, as it were. So that's going to be second personal knowledge. So that's kind of a construct of uh, this acquaintance thing, plus some propositional stuff. And that's, by the way, that's the kind of knowledge that I think God really wants for us. And that's intimately connected to propositional knowledge, but is not just propositional knowledge. And this is one of the main burdens of the book, in my view, is to try to get people to see that what God really wants for us is to be second personally engaged in intimate ways with him. And we can't extract propositional knowledge from that. It's important that we have propositional knowledge in order to achieve that knowledge that's intimate and personal. And the way the scriptures, I think, talk about this are in terms of like seeking God in his temple. So you have to know where to find him, right? You have to know how to find him. But that's not really what God wants for you, ultimately. Those are steps along the way to that personal engagement with him, that intimacy with God, that is fundamentally what the Christian life is about for us as individuals.
0: Hmm. That's good. I, I I almost want to throw a curveball, and I'm going to throw it and see what see what you do with it. So you, you brought God into the picture. I think a lot of accounts of God's knowledge would say, well, for him to be omniscient is for him to— to like have all like knowledge of all propositions, but not necessarily these other sorts of knowledge. Is that appropriate way to think about it? Uh, I, I don't know how much research you've done in that realm and applying it directly to the divine attributes and things, but I would be curious if you think there is a useful way to think about his knowledge in particular.
1: That's a really good question, Jordan, and I'm I'm hesitant to wade too far in that direction because I don't know the tradition on this. So yeah. let me just make a couple observations, and then um, what I would need to do is go do a bunch of work in the tradition to actually be able to understand what people have tended to mean by omniscient. But just going off the word for a minute, um, Scientia... It tends to be this kind of abstract propositional sort of thing in in the the kind of philosophical tradition anyway. So that species of knowledge is really propositional knowledge. So I don't know whether that just happened to be the way that the tradition talked about this, but I expect that there is intimacy that is not present between God and some of his creatures because of creation's rebellion so i doubt that you could say and especially because things like second personal knowledge are are mutual right so when you reject god he lacks a kind of intimacy with you or anyway this is a nice uh, this is a starting point this is where i would start with this but that doesn't mean he doesn't he lacks understanding about facts about you if that makes sense yeah so I would expect that in the tradition, there would be some tension between wanting to think of omniscient as including all these other species of knowledge, and yet the separation that's affected by the fall. And so I don't want to commit on any of this. I'm just noting that I'm I'm guessing, if I had to guess, I would guess that there's some kind of tension between those things. This is actually something that I'm I want to explore in the future because I'm very interested in consequences of evil for mm-hmm. the life of the mind. And I, I'm, I actually have been collecting a bunch of books to read um, about evil and what it does to us in the tradition. So yeah. this is not a space I know a lot about. So please don't hold me to anything that I just said, but that is where I would start.
0: Well, I like that answer personally. I think that sh- displays the right sort of dispositions about asking questions and thinking about things. So I appreciate that. Uh, I, I am also, when it, gets, it comes to this, I, the paper title that I always love the most is something along the lines of like, does God experience divine creepy emotions sort of thing? Because I think that really does get at some of the questions that are in play here. Um, but I don't want to go in that direction. I want to talk more <laughs> about the book again. Um in your, so part of what you re, the reason you wrote this book, you were talking about it. So I just want to just ask you point blank to explain it. Why does philosophical knowledge like this matter for me, for my children, for your children, and the other people that are members of the church? I mean, does Jesus really care about knowledge? I think most people would probably get like, yes, there is some ground level of knowledge that matters, but building out beyond that. Uh, why do these things matter for Christians in general?
1: I, oh, gosh, I have so much to say about this. Um, so the first thing I want to point out is that there's the kind of philosophical knowledge that I'm trying to help people understand in the book. And then there is the idea that knowledge matters to Jesus, sort of generally speaking, this propositional knowledge broadly matters to Jesus. I think both are helpful for the Christian. And I'm going to take them together, and, and maybe we can unpack some of the differences there. But fundamentally, what I think is that there are two primary roles for knowledge in the life of the believer, um, as it's stated in the scripture, or as I see it presented in the scripture. So the first is that I think knowledge prompts us to worship. Um, one of my favorite passages on this is Psalm 100, if you haven't read that in a while, I encourage you to go read it. But the, what Psalm 100 does is it connects what we know about God to our, our, our worship of God. And this is, of course, all over the pages of scripture once you notice it. Because you worship God because of things that he has done on your behalf. I mean, that's constantly, if you read in the Old Testament and the New, the call to worship is on the basis of what God has done for you. And if you don't know anything about what God has done for you, you have no cause to worship that is inside of you. You do have cause to worship in the sense that like, it's always appropriate to worship God. Every creature owes God devotion. But to actually have that worship prompted inside of you, you need to know something about what God has done. Remember that God has brought you out of Egypt is the constant refrain of the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, you see... You were sinners and Christ died for you. Therefore, right, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. You, you get the idea. Now, so the first thing is prompting worship. And the second thing is that I think, as Paul puts it, the renewal of our minds, that is, the ceasing to rebel cognitively, as Paul describes in Romans 1, you get the transformation of the self via the renewal of the mind in Romans 12. So the formation of our character into Christ-likeness is in part grounded in the renewal of our minds and a right understanding of who God is and who I am and what God has done on behalf of all of creation. And in part, that's because that's what prompts you to worship. And worship is just coming into the presence of God with a rightly ordered mind so that you subject yourself to him and what he wants for you in your life. So worship is really just encountering God, but you do that because you understand things about God and yourself and the differences there. right? And then that is what transforms you into Christ-likeness. So you can't disconnect growth in Christ from Understanding. You can't reduce growth in Christ to greater understanding, but you can connect those two things. You can't have growth without increasing understanding. Now, here's what I want you to see, just like application wise on this. And this is the sort of thing that I tell my students. Every single thing that you come to learn is really just an expansion of the basic truths of Christianity that. God created the world and humanity in it, that we are fallen, that God is constantly reaching out to redeem us, and that in the end, all will be made well, right? Now, imagine then you're in a biology lab and you're uncovering the details of cells and how they work. That is an opportunity if you connect that to this basic Christian story in the right sorts of ways. That prompts you to worship the creator God, because what you're seeing is the level of care and detail that he has put into creation. And that is a glorious thing that speaks about who he is and his mind and his care for this place and all the other things that you can connect that to, right? So similarly for every other domain of human understanding, if you situate that in the right sorts of ways, it drives you toward your creator who loves you. And that just is a way for the life of the mind to not be a stale thing that's off, distant from your devotion, but is actually something that can drive your devotion in profound and life changing ways in my view.
2: Yeah. So, um, you know, I think you've helpfully pointed out, right. The, the impact of, of the life of the mind on formation of character and worship and, um, you know, just, just life as, as a Christian, um, but uh i think you you mentioned earlier the you're interested in the impacts of the fall and evil on 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 the mind. Uh, I'm curious uh what would you say then going sort of in the other direction how how does virtue and character sort of uh maybe impact the the way we think and and the life of the mind thinking well and and actually coming to knowledge is there is there a, a influence in the other direction as well?
1: Oh, i think there's huge influence uh, yes, so the let me just maybe approach this question by uh, talking about our affective lives, like the our emotional lives, and so on. So, um, one of the things that our affect does, which and 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 affect emotions, those kinds of things are deeply connected to virtue, right? Like, so part of what it is to be virtuous is to respond affectively in the right ways to the things that we encounter. Like, if you if if you're if you're not heartbroken over um, learning that a, a small child has some grave disease, um, there's something kind of disrupted in your in your heart, right? From a virtue standpoint, so one of the things that that our affective lives do is direct our minds on certain things. This is very clear in the case of things like fear. When one is afraid one naturally hunts for the thing in your environment that is to be feared, that is a danger to you. And it, it's a, it's a very attention narrowing kind of emotion. And uh, there are positive emotions too, right? Joy and so on. And these things tend to broaden your mind and often uh, lead to creativity and, and things like that. Right. So our affective lives often affect what kinds of evidence in the world we notice. And that then, of course, feeds into the process of belief formation. So if your affective life is a mess, that is, if you, if you lack virtues in some ways, and those two things aren't exactly the same, so I don't want to be communicating there, but there is a connection there. If, you're, if your affective life is, is ordered properly or ordered badly, if it's ordered properly, you're going to be hunting for the right kinds of, you're gonna be noticing the right things in the world. And if it's ordered in, inappropriately, you're gonna be uh, looking for the wrong things, right? You won't be attending to the right things in the world. Now, what that means is that what's feeding our minds is not disconnected from how we are structured from the perspective of virtue. So there is a mutual kind of interrelationship here, because I think then what we believe about the world will impact those things as well. So there's a there, there can be a virtuous cycle of that relationship and also a vicious one. So um, that's one of the things that I think is really important to see is that if you care about the life of the mind, you also have to care about the rest of your life, because those two things can't be disconnected in the way that a very long philosophical tradition suggests that they can be. We can't make that mistake. Hmm. Does that answer your question, Matt? I, that's that was my
0: yeah. That's Absolutely. where I wanted to go with that. Yeah, right. Great. So I, I guess I'm thinking of examples of like evil geniuses that I've seen in like every movie in existence. Super smart, super intelligent, and yet vicious in all sorts of qualities. Is that just ficti- fictive in some sense to where that that's not possible? Or like, how is it they can disconnect their heart from their mind and yet have this really robust intellectual knowledge but lack the heart behind it
1: okay i the, I'm so glad you asked this question, Jordan. This is an aspect of the question that Matt asked that I should have answered before, and so I'm grateful. One of the most important things about our affect and connection to our mind is that affect is a big part of the difference between knowledge and understanding so what we were talking about knowledge before as a kind of inner representation that's formed on the basis of good reasons and that's accurate to the world, right? Reasonable true belief is a sort of slogany form of that. Now, understanding is having a lot of that stuff, but that's organized around a kind of comprehensive picture that makes sense. And often, our affective lives are part of that organizational scheme. So think for example, do you think the world is a comedy or a tragedy? Like will people get what they deserve in the end or are people gonna, is it just sort of random consequences, right? That kind of comedy tragedy distinction. Uh, Well, that that picture of the world is going to affect how you tie together all your disparate pieces of knowledge. And often I think that kind of difference is carried affectively, right? And that, of course, shapes the way you'll encounter bits of evil, for example. This is why you find Paul, in my, this is my view, this is why you always find Paul wrestling with evil eschatologically. Almost every time Paul talks about evil, he winds up talking about the hope that we have in, a, in the future eschatological reception of the heavenly realm onto earth right and there's a reason for that it's because he thinks if you keep the end of the story in mind that will shape how you think about these experiences you're having now so i think often when we see the evil genius what's going on is that they lack understanding even if they have lots of random pieces of knowledge and this is a real danger for us by the way because our temptation is to drive toward data points is why we think we can answer everything through Google, but what Google can't supply is understanding. Google can't supply a coherent picture that weaves all of these little pieces of knowledge together into a whole that makes sense of us and our place in the world. So that's often what the difference is. And notice that's why they wind up things like utilitarians all the time. So think of Thanos or whatever. Yeah, It's like, if you're not moved a little bit by Thanos' speech, you, 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 you're not, I mean, that's, that's what makes a good speech in praise of the villain, right? Is that you're, you kind of think, oh, there's some plausibility to that, right? Like maybe it would help to just eliminate half of the population of the entire <laughs> galaxy or universe or whatever. Um, but what he lacks is understanding about what the world is like and its resilience and what's deeply important and all those sorts of things. He's lacking all of that. And he therefore isn't able to put his role in the world into a coherent picture that can actually make sense of all the other kinds of goods that are in in existence.
0: Yeah, no, that's good. And I I think that probably makes sense for me. I'm a data analyst by day. I know Matt does data scientist stuff. And I think one of the big things for me is I see this, especially all the time on the Internet, when people like to share charts and graphs and things they lack the overall context to really make sense of the disparate data points that are being put there. Uh, So I think that is very plausible to me to make sense of it that way. A A question along this that I wanted to follow up with is why do you think a lot of local churches, and maybe this is similar to what Mark Knoll wrote about in his The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, why has there been a tendency to divorce the life of the mind from the life of the heart? I'm not, I don't expect you to be a historian here and give me like here, all the the different reasons, but just practically speaking as a pastor, like what's causing this divide to say, no, I shouldn't care about the life of the mind. It's all about the life of the heart, just having pious attitudes and dispositions towards other people.
1: Well, I, I think there is a lot to say about that. So there are historical influences that have shaped the way we think about human beings and these connections that we could talk about if you want. Um, I'm happy to to give you my um, sort of take on those questions. But at the end of the day, I think the the fundamental problem that we have is that Pursuing the life of the mind takes time, and it's it's difficult, and not everyone has that luxury, right? And in fact, I don't think that we should expect everyone to do this sort of thing. I, I, I mean, it, it's better for people to do it, don't get me wrong. But there are times of people's lives, and there are lives overall that just they don't have space for it. they're too concerned with things like survival and and just you know putting food on the table or whatever it is right and and so i think we need to think about the pursuit of the life of the mind as a as a church not so much as individuals i think now what that means is that it is incumbent upon the church to be pursuing these kinds of questions and it's incumbent upon individuals to participate in that to the degree that they are able because it is important to Jesus. Like this is why where you find Christianity and history, you find literacy, right? We care about these kinds of things. And that's really, really good. But it's always going to have to be subject to other goods that are in the world. And we're thinking in this kind of aggregate way, right? Sort of like I think, um, you know, the church needs to be engaged uh, with um, uh, parentless children, but not every single person in the church needs to be adopting Parentless. Does that make sense? So that's, I want to start with that so that people don't feel like, oh my gosh, if I'm not doing this, then I'm a failure as a Christian. Like, that's not what I want to say. This is especially true for those uh, in the church who may have just cognitive deficiencies or disabilities that prevent them from engaging these things in the the sorts of ways that that are ideal, right? And in some ways, we're all in that position to some degree or another, right? Now, having said all that, we need to encourage people to do this kind of work because it is valuable to their devotion to Christ. It befits humanity to be devoted to Jesus through our minds. And one of the things that we do not have is a Coherent account of how it is that our minds actually help us to do the things that people rightly sense we deeply want at the end of the day, which is to love people better. This is a big part of why I wrote this book, right? We tend to think of our minds as separate from our hearts. And that's not the biblical vision. The biblical vision is one on which one of the aspects of the heart is the mind. And there are obvious reasons for this. You can't love someone well if you don't know what they want and need. Right? So we need to just help people see what they actually, I think, already sense, which is that understanding another is relevant to loving them well. Because what's true in the, the sort of the church context is that This knowledge stuff, though it's important, and I think even in some cases valuable for its own sake, in many cases it is, really there's a deeper good, right? The deeper good is love. And we don't understand as a church the connection between knowledge and love. We have got to get better at communicating that. That's what I think is fundamentally the problem. That's the disconnect that I've experienced is people are like, I just want to love people. It's like, yes, you should just want to love people and to love them. Well, you better know who they are and what they need and what's good for them. That includes yourself, your family, your neighbors, and the whole world, right? That's and God, that's what I think is fundamentally going on. Does that answer your question, Jordan?
0: Yeah, no, that that's right on. That's exactly what I was wanting to know. So I appreciate yeah. you walking me through that.
2: I think another question or issue that that's relevant for for people in the church is um, is just issues with the extent of knowledge or the scope of knowledge, uh, and and whether or not we can we can take our Christian convictions to be to be knowledge, you know. Um, and uh, I mean, you know, I. I'm sure you've, you've encountered people who they say, well, you know, I, this is what I believe. I, I can't know it, but I, I believe it, you know, I have faith uh, or something like that. And, um, you know, and obviously things like scientism are kind of in the air we breathe. Um, uh, so I'm I'm just curious, uh, how, how, how should we think about, I guess, uh, particularly religious knowledge as a Christian, uh, how, how is it that we can, we can actually be said to have knowledge of God and of, of, uh, of Christian truth claims. Um, yeah. So take that where you will.
1: Well, that's a, that's a, a very helpful question, Matt. And I, I think the, the place I want to start actually is with the scriptures because often um, in my experience, anyway, that's coming from something like this place. I believe things because the Bible says they're true. And, and, but yet I don't know them. Right. Because I don't have the right kind of evidence or something like that. That no one puts it that way. Right. Like no one's, no one's like, Oh, it's not the right kind of evidence. That's not the way people will talk about it, but they will, they will treat, as you point out, Matt, scientific claims though. That's the, our confidence in the the scientific world has, has been eroded of late, but, um, Anyway, there, there's a there's a, a sense that hearing these things spoken in the scriptures is not enough for me to know, but it is enough for me to believe. Okay. Now, if that's right, I think the problem is a mistake with respect to whether you can know things because the Bible says they're true. And my view is I have a very high view of scripture. Um, I mean, basically, I think God wrote the Bible. Uh, that, that's There's obviously nuance there and all that, but that's kind of what I think Christians have thought for forever, basically. And uh, so if that's right, then the question becomes, can you know something on the basis of testimony? And I think the fact is, testimony is about the most important source of knowledge for individuals that there is. Now, all testimony, I think, is a transmission of belief. And it can be a transmission of knowledge if the, the person who's testifying knows right, what they're testifying about. And so at some point, you're going to trace back to a way of knowing that isn't testimonial. And, and that's fine. But notice that all of our scientific beliefs, for most of us anyway, are, are basically known on the basis of testimony. People know their own names on the basis of testimony. For crying out loud, like your birthday is something you know on the basis of testimony. You might be like, "No, I read it on a birth certificate." Well, that's testimony too, you know. So, uh, testimony is such a crucial component of our knowing, and it does express a dependence on other people knowing things. But nonetheless, that's how you know it now. If the Bible is divine testimony, then I think you can know if you can know things on the basis of the testimony of your parents, then I think you can know things on the basis of testimony of God. Now, of course, you have to deal with lots of questions about the scriptures and so on. I'm not I'm not pretending to answer those questions right now. But if the Bible is divine testimony, you can know things because the Bible says so. That's compatible with having other evidence for those claims too, which I think there's lots of. I think you can have testimony, or not testimony, but knowledge of God's existence from other domains. But you can also know that God exists just on the basis of the testimony of the scriptures. That's my view, right? So if that's right, then what we read in the Bible, rightly understood, counts as knowledge. And we need to tell people that. Because it's not second class. It's not second class knowledge. Any more than your knowledge of your birthday is second class because your parents are the ones that told you so. Mm-hmm. So that is a crucially important thing, I think, to give people confidence that they can know about the world and come to understand it through the testimony of the scriptures. And that that does not have to compete with other ways of knowing about the world that God has made, and even about God himself and ourselves. And our task as believers is to think coherently about all of these ways of coming to understand, which include both the scriptures and also things that we're learning on the basis of just our ordinary experience and thinking really hard. Now, what the scriptures can give us that those other things don't, in my view, is understanding. Because what the scriptures give us is a coherent picture of the whole that helps us make sense of the various parts. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the first place that I would go with that sort of question, Matt. That's a quick,
2: kind of somewhat tangential follow up. I mean, you were talking there about um, which which sorts of the the kinds of knowledge that are foundational, and uh, this is not to ask you to go into foundationalism and all that, but. Uh, in particular, we were talking earlier about uh, the different kinds of knowledge. Um, and so uh, one, one question I have for you on this note is, should we think of one of those kinds of knowledge, propositional knowledge or knowledge by acquaintance, should we think about one of them as more foundational than the other? Um, and is, that, are there, is there something of importance in thinking of it one way or the other, uh, in particular, the relation between acquaintance and propositional knowledge?
1: Oh, that's a tough question. I I have thoughts about this, but I haven't I haven't followed all of the threads. So I'm just going to say a couple things and and then you can try to talk me out of it sometime if you want. Um here's my sense. My sense is that acquaintance is the bottom. <laughs> and what I mean by that is the kinds of evidence that we have that forms the basic Uh, reason for our believing the ways that we do will involve acquaintance in various modes. Now, let me give you an example. Just take vision as a case in point. I think that I have like old school views of these things. So I actually think that you encounter an external world uh, in vision. Now, there's... (laughs) People that know anything about the theory of perception are like oh my gosh i can't how could you believe that sort of thing so i do think that's true um and but even if you don't there's going to be basic stuff going on inside your own mind that is an experience of some kind right and i don't think experience like sense experience too much like i think um rational forms of intuition and so on would would be a similar kind of a deal but what what i think is going on there is basically we're being acquainted with parts of the world, whether that's inside our own minds or on the outside, right? That's kind of what's going on. And then there's this, um, I have views about how all this works, but there's there's a kind of formation of a representational thing, a belief on the basis of those bits of acquaintance, right? And then I think you can have similar things that go on with God. And of course, there's lots of problems about skeptical concerns and so on. How can you know it's a, a you know an experience of an outside thing when you can have a similar experience that you know all that kind of stuff right? I want to register all of that, but I don't think that in the end takes away from the basic claim, which is it's acquaintance with things that serves as the ultimate basis for our knowledge and therefore our understanding. Now, I would add though that what we come to understand then will shape what it is that we go on to encounter down the road and can enrich those experiences in certain ways. So for example, sommeliers are able to notice things in their experience that other people who aren't trained to do those kinds of things cannot. Likewise, people who have perfect pitch hear things in their auditory experience that other people cannot vision can be better or worse right like you get the idea so we can train and hone those skills and capacities uh in in profound ways and this is true no less in the religious case than in other cases right so i just you know there are people who can discern the spirits right I, so i just want to register that now what that means then is that There's a kind of foundation that's supplied by acquaintance, but then it's not like it's some linear deal after that. It is a complex interrelation. And as we were talking about with emotions and affect before, I think you can get in virtuous
2: and vicious cycles on these kinds of things.
0: So I have way too. Oh, go ahead,
2: Matt. I was just going to say, I'm not going to try to talk you out of any of that. So
0: (laughs) (laughs) I was just going to say, I have way too many questions and not enough time. Uh, One question, you can be quick on this. I just wanted to follow up on it because I think it has a lot of pastoral explanatory power and use. When thinking about knowledge and its relationship to claims in the Bible and the testimony that's there, why is it that it seems like at some point for a lot of people in high school or college, they get this sense that they need to be absolutely certain about their religious beliefs? and because they can't come to this like scientific type of certainty they have to discard the whole thing is that are we applying the wrong sort of test to this or is that the right test and we just don't know how to think through and be properly certain of these claims
1: there are two things i think at least going on one is is a mistaken picture of the kind of certainty that science supplies because as the history of science bears out, um, scientific claims are no more certain than anything else. Um, and if you if you want to read in the history of science, you will find that very... In fact, there's a whole discussion of this thing called the pessimistic meta-induction in the philosophy of science that basically says, well, you've been wrong before, so you're probably wrong now. Um, now, I don't think that argument works. I think we can know things on the basis of science. But I, I just want to register that because people are like, oh... Religious stuff, you know, changes or whatever. People disagree about it. Well, so do scientists over the years. So there's that side of it. So I think that's an overestimate. Part of that is born out of an overestimation of what science can do. But I think that people are rightly drawn to want confidence and certainty. I, I don't think that's a bad pursuit, and then i think there are some ways that we read the scriptures when it talks about certainty that are probably mistakes. They're not talking about having perfect confidence in the representation of the they what paul often means for example is that a practical certainty, a certainty that says i can live according to this confidently. That's what he's really driving at. So so i think some of it is about misunderstanding what the text is actually demanding of us when it says, you know, that the, uh, an ideal to pursue is certainty. Now, I also want to point out that there is rightly something that happens, and this is not new. It's never going to go away until Jesus returns. And I think it's, it's actually um, understandable and in some ways appropriate, if not good. And that is this. You become your own person. You move away from your family of origin You've been dependent on your parents in certain ways. And I think we underestimate the way that we depend on others, even cognitively. This is why it's so important to be engaged with the local church, especially when you're wrestling with your faith. But when, and I experience this all the time with students at Biola, they move away from home. They've had loving families that have brought them up in the faith, not all of them, but many of them. And they come to a place like Biola And they start to engage with these ideas and they realize, oh my gosh, I didn't understand this in the way that I thought I did. And now there are two reactions to that. One is, oh my gosh, I've been doing it wrong or someone has wronged me. I think that's not the way it works. I think the right reaction is I'm becoming an adult. That's an opportunity for me to embrace these things for myself in a certain sense. Now, that's i think a big part of what's going on but then here's the 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 kicker the kicker is often churches tie tertiary things to primary things in a way that creates an edifice that is fragile because the tertiary thing is always going to be a little bit gray right and so when those things get tethered together in problematic ways and people don't allow folks in their growing up to wrestle with those things, to express doubts about them, to understand that those things are not as certain as the core central things. Then when they come to see that, oh my gosh, there is more gray there than I thought, they, they transmit that to those primary core things and it shakes the whole edifice in a way that it really didn't need to. So it behooves local churches to be honest about what we can be confident about and how confident we can be about it. We want to be, as my pastor sometimes puts it, we want to be as certain and clear as the text of scripture is about things that are related to the Christian faith. And sometimes the text of scripture on purpose, in my view, (laughs) isn't as clear about some things as it is others. And that's not a fault in the text. That's just to say, God is not needing us to be as confident about that as he is wanting us to be confident about these core central things. So I think there's a lot of different pieces going on. But what we are called to as folks who lead in the church is to make sure that we are shepherding the minds of people in our church in a way that allows them to have strength and confidence where that's appropriate and allow to be a little bit more um, uncertain in places where that's appropriate. And sometimes that's going to be uncomfortable for people. Right. But yeah, of course it is like life in a fallen world is uncomfortable.
0: And this has been awesome. So I've got to ask one more question and we've been talking a lot about pursuing the life of the mind, encouraging that and having it properly balanced what would we say to the person who is pursuing the life of the mind but lacks the appropriate virtues of the heart? How do you counsel them? How do you encourage them to pursue the other side of the intellectual life?
1: Jordan, that's a question that's very near and dear to me because I am a person who has um, hidden myself in intellectual pursuits at the detriment of the rest of myself. And so I understand that temptation and that struggle. And I think that there will be lots of different things (laughs) that go on to cause that kind of a problem. Um, So let me just speak to my own experience. And perhaps that will be useful to some people, but there will certainly be folks that need other kinds of help. The thing that has been the most profoundly useful for me is backing out intentionally of some of those hyper-intellectual approaches to things like the scripture and to church. So here are some ways, practical ways that I did that. One, for a while, I just didn't bring my Bible to church with me when the text of scripture was being read i listened i didn't read along when sermons were happening i didn't take notes right now this is not ideal i don't want you to hear me saying this is this is this is this is a a concession to my broken heart right this is not meant to be the path to growth um except in certain cases but what i needed was to in in concrete and tangible ways stop approaching my devotion in the ways that were allowing me to hide. Does that make sense? So what what I needed to do was to remove my mind a little bit, not entirely, but just say, I'm going to turn off that critical, hyperanalytic, little dark angel in my head while I'm engaged in this practice. And I started even in my own devotion, reading large chunks, not taking notes. So I, I, to this day, don't write in Bibles. You know. Now I've moved to a place where I can approach things a more healthy way. But what I'm saying is that for a time, what I needed to do was back off some of that and intentionally try to say, this sermon is God's word to me spoken by one of his people who is trained to help me grow. I'm just going to embrace that and feel it, right? And hear it. It's it's the difference between watching a movie to write a critical write-up of it and giving yourself to the story. Those are two different approaches, right? And over time, if you become the right kind of self, you can do those things at the same time. But for some of us, we have to sort of wrestle with balancing those things. So that's that's my experience and and it's been a joy to watch god over the decades now kind of work on me in a way that allows me to re-engage some of those more analytical approaches to things like the scriptures and so on but for a time i just needed to turn that off and i don't think that's uncommon especially with people who have natural inclinations to analytic modes of thought I think that's a pretty common experience, um, or anyway, it has been with me and my friends and my students in the philosophy program and so on. So I just those are just some some observations that yeah. I hope will answer that question, at least in part.
0: No, that definitely does. And I, I can resonate with that a lot. I mean, I think in college and even part of seminary, I used to listen to like a million different sermons, like just, you know, on my podcast, I, I was a sermon junkie, constantly listening to sermons. But at some point I realized that was bleeding into my ability to actually hear the sermon for itself at my own local church. And I began to critique, well, that illustration didn't really land appropriately. Uh, He could have gone from this route. I would have done this. And then I realized I'm not actually hearing the word for the word. I am beginning to just criticize the sort of like delivery more than receiving what's being offered. And so I just stopped listening to sermons altogether outside of my own local church. And I still don't, I don't listen to anything except my church. And that has really helped me be in tune with just the receiving posture that I'm supposed to have in that environment.
1: Yeah, that's, I, I love that, Jordan. So you're one of the people that I'm talking about, I guess is, and I, I, again, I don't think for folks who are academically oriented, especially folks who are, this is not, this is a normal human experience, right? So, What's interesting is that we're having a, a conversation about a book called Knowledge for the Love of God. And what I'm saying at the end is like, some people need to care less about that. But but I mean, what I'm saying is like, we all have our weaknesses, right? Now, for me, I'm an academic. My strength is, of course, going to be in the part of, that is to do with the mind. But what that means is that probably other parts of me atrophy and we have a, a different kind of problem with other people in the church where the mind is what's atrophied and these other things are well-developed and working well. But what God has for us in the end is these things all being well-developed and working in concert together so that we can be devoted to God and in service to his kingdom in profound ways. So we need these different parts of the body of Christ to mutually encourage one another. And it's a really beautiful thing if you open your heart to that reality, right? Then you don't have to expect that everybody's doing the same sort of thing and everybody's in the same place in their development. We can all be a mutual encouragement to one another where we are weak and where we are strong. And that's a really, I mean, that is a picture of what the body of Christ is I think supposed to be like.
0: Well, this has been awesome. We could obviously talk for another like two hours, um, right. but I don't want to give away everything that's in this book. So, if you've enjoyed this this far, you know what you need to do. You can go get yourself a copy of it, it's not expensive. We have people on here who talk about their $150 books. This is not one of those, so you can afford it without breaking the bank. So, go check it out. Check out Tim's work too. Tim, do you have a website? I don't remember.
1: I do. Um, it's kind of funny. Uh, Tim Pickavance is not a name people can spell, but an anagram of Tim Pickavance is Pancake Victim. Uh, you can check that out. And uh, so my Twitter handle is, is Pancake Victim. My website is pancakevictim.com. It's minimal, but you can kind of click through to things that I'm up to and doing uh, through that. and. I do have one of those $150 books, but I'm glad that's not the one we're talking
0: about. Well, I love the $150 books. I just can't tell people to buy them for themselves. I tell them, go to the library and tell your library to buy the book so that you can have access to it. Um, But thanks for doing this. This was great. Uh, I encourage everybody to check out Tim's stuff. He's got a ton of other published work that you can keep up on and read about. Uh, But as you can tell, he's got the exact sort of disposition that we want to commend to you Um, Not everybody do we have on the show has the right sort of disposition all the time. I think Tim's one of those people who does, so I commend his work in all its facets. Go check it out. Enjoy it. Be, Be edified by it. And as you know, you've been listening to the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, and we'll talk to you guys soon.